What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is rapper and member of Oakland hip-hop crew Living Legends, creator and curator of West Oakland's now-gone Spirit House Gallery, and multimedia visual artist Josh Whitaker, also known as Picasso. Picasso, thank you for joining us. Right on, man. Pleasure to be here. Happy to have you with us. We've been trying to get you for a while. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the sticks now, so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta dig. <laughs> I'm in the dirt. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And we're gonna lead up to that and get into some of how the pandemic maybe affected you. But before we get all the way there. I want to take it back to the beginning. What was your relationship to art as a kid? A word. How did where you grew up impact that? And also, like, as a youngster, what were your kind of artistic inspirations? Hmm. Well, I have the, I have that story, like, already in, logged in my head because I've thought about it and I've told it a couple times. But, like, depending on how far back I want to go. Um, let's see. I, I was uh, born in Long Beach, California. My dad was in school moved to San Francisco, California, finished his schooling, and then um, was working in San Jose, California for my first, like, six years, formative, you know, six years was through those 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 places, Long Beach, San Francisco, and, and, and San Jose. In, uh, in San Jose, ironically enough, my pops is a veteran um, black man, got into some trouble with, with just reintegrating after Vietnam, and uh, and was away for a while. While he was away, he uh, would send me pictures, letters, and would draw pictures in the letters. Right, and and these were probably my first um, my first experience of seeing hand drawn uh, uh, pictures. Right, and so um, it was a couple months maybe, and and he was reintegrated into into the family. And I asked him, how do you draw? Like, what do you do? I, I had a neat, immediately was curious about how he established and accomplished drawing, right? And this is just drawings from his head. Um, he's, un, he's not formally trained. He's an artist as well, but just, you know, self-taught. So he told me the answer to all of my whole question of how do you draw was one, one sentence. Put the lines where they go. Mm. That was it. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's all I had. He didn't he didn't expound. He didn't want me to like practice or nothing. It was just like put the lines where they go. So fast forward, uh, moving. I remember I think I was first grade. We moved from San Jose to the Central Coast, Pismo Beach, San Luis Obispo County. Very much a cultural uh, uh, shock, um, culture shock and. Um, sitting in spaces with uh, not as diverse as I was used to, not as hyphy as I was used to. And, and like, you know, being a little kid, you, you, you're kind of like set in a, a acclimated into a, into like a, a pace, you know, and the inner city pace was a whole, was a whole nother story from, from this new um, surrounding. So, so I remember my first day of, of school, I was paired with, a kid and the teacher was like, you know, Matt, this is Josh, Josh, this is Matt, show him around, right? That kind of thing. 
And it turns out Matt Fisher was this like super whiz kid, introverted drawer. Uh, and he, in first grade, he could draw like advanced drawing, white piece of paper, pencil, and bust out like crazy BMX bikes, cartoons, Garfield, <laughs> nice. peanuts, like all this kind of dope. And I was like, okay, I I want to know how to do that. So I think for the next four years, I was probably friends with Matt, copying him, another friend of mine. We would just copy cartoons and cartooning, 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 trying to learn how to draw. And that was it. I mean, that was kind of like my first my first inspiration um, of wanting to learn how to draw and then continually once it came into like hip hop, like the early eighties, then graffiti hit the scene and I was copying characters and I got that um, spray can art book and got exposed to a lot of the um, graffiti culture from the East coast. And I mean, spray can art, that's like a Bible, right. For any, for any graffiti writer. And so I guess that would have been like the early eighties and it kind of just stuck always wanted to to be able to draw characters and um turns out matt fisher's dad ended is was the art teacher at my high school right so this kind of answers why he was maybe so advanced so i took a couple classes of, of art in high school took a couple of um painting classes beginning introduction to oil painting in college and then that was the, all my formal training other than that it's just always been a journey of like um experimenting and and trying to be able to pull off like some of these things you know painting drawing and and mixed media and stuff like that so so how did the transition happen for you where you were in first grade it sounds like starting to get really excited about drawing and visual art into the world of not just the visuals of hip-hop but also rapping um well let's see so Every Christmas, my pops would pretty much buy like two or three records, vinyl records. They were wrapped up as gifts under the Christmas tree. And that was like, that was it. You could tell they were records because they were like, you know, thin and <laughs> 12 by 12 vinyl. And it was like, boom, that that's that was the most cherished gift under the Christmas tree. Right. And so we would crack those open and put them on. And, the, and, and at that time probably 81 to 83 i was probably first to second third grade fourth grade break dancing was the whole thing so i was getting you know he was putting run dmc uh fat boys uh uh houdini all these records we were popping up at egyptian lover you know all of these things were just boom they were being introduced into into my life, you know, and, and it could have been, it could have been GI Joe. It could have been, you know, anything else, but it was these, these, these pieces of vinyl. It was kind of like him buying, buying himself a gift, but then, you know, putting it for the family. So, so yeah, man, I was opening these, these wax uh, gems and breaking, breaking hit beat street hit. It was just like, and we were far out, you know, we weren't in the, in the city anymore. So it was reaching us that way. And, um, it was just all the craze. Hip hop was a new young music. And like, you know, I had some family in LA that would come up and share tapes, you know, that they recorded off the radio and, and heard early KDAY mixes and stuff like that. And just, I was like, just 
thirsty for it. So, I mean, the whole hip hop thing just took my life and pretty much guided it through my experience of being a mixed kid in a predominantly white and Hispanic, you know, um, community uh, high school and pretty much kind of held on to hip hop as my identity. And so that was that was a healthy thing. That was a, a productive, creative thing. And it just stuck, man. It stuck to like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just like always kind of a hard headed Capricorn, like want to see stuff through to the end. And, and it was all about I was all about it. Hip DJing, rapping, you know, beatboxing, graffiti, writing characters, anything. So I was just suck, soaking it all up. I know you said your dad's one-liner advice for drawing was to just put the lines where they go. I'm wondering if you've ever thought about that in terms of how you write raps or or bringing that element, putting those lines just where oh, they absolutely. go in your lyrics. That's well. a great. That's a great uh, kind of like connection for you to make and a question because mm. nowadays, like we just linked up with the crew and went to Palm Springs for four days and recorded like basically recorded an album living legends a new album so that so that is like that was like rap camp right i i got two new baby girls i'm not <laughs> out of this bubble like mm. hardly at all i got a, an advanced father's day gift which was a ticket down to palm springs boom we hopped out and got an airbnb and just like had rap camp and that was that was amazing because all the music was ready, all two workstations set up, and it was like, write your raps, let's go, record, record, record. And so as at this point, you know, seasoned veterans and, and, and professionals, you know, at writing, I mean, a lot of even the industry, people that are major in the, in the industry, they have teams of writers, they have, um, they have lots of sources of input that goes into actually writing a song. And, and we came up kind of on this like improvisational spur of the moment, write what you have, perfect it and record it on the spot, uh, train the thought, you know, model. And so that was what we all snapped back into. And for me at this point, it's definitely like that. I, I look at a rap, if you're talking about bars and a section of time and music, you have... With the crew, it's eight of us, so we weren't writing anything longer than eight bar verses. And so the th the concept was eight is the new 16, you know? So we were writing these little hot pocket, you know, eight bar verses, get it, get in what you can get in. And yeah, it's like, it's like masonry. It's like um, carpentry. It's like, you, you don't, at this point, you don't want to have even one word out of place, you know, and any, any crooked, any crooked stone in the, in the mm. wall, in the fence, in the wall is just, it just doesn't sit right. You know? And I mean, like I was doing a verse, I was engineering a, a verse of my, my partner, uh, Elijah Black Mercury. We have a crew called Alien Art Gang and he was recording actually last night uh, at the house with me. And and I and I listened to what he recorded and then I went back over it with him and said, look, like instead of saying these two words, why don't you say these two words, same syllables, but like it's easier for your mouth to say them. It's it's more direct. It takes away this weird. It could be a weird little like two S's or something that make it 
to where when you when you say it, it's not really clear to the listener. It, it's so much little details like that where at this point I'm like, yeah, the lines got to be super clean. Um, go over them with a fine tooth comb and just say what you mean directly, like with energy, clear and have fun with it, you know, and then, it, and then that ends up coming out, you know, I feel like as a stronger musical or creative piece. And in your dad's words, just put the lines where they go. I love that. Just put the lines where they go and they go somewhere like this. You know, it's 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 wide open artist subjective. But I, I, in my experience, it, it has to do with the feeling. So if you don't, if you have a feeling, like if you don't put the lines where they go, absolutely, you might have a little bit of a feeling that you might not even acknowledge. You're like, ah, it's good enough. You know, like it's, it's happening. I got my eight bars or I got my piece finished. But something about this one line or one part of a line is just not working for you and if you have that feeling really like for me at this point it's about going and addressing that feeling and making it right putting that little tweak in where it needs to go and and making it be where it is you know right in the right place so so yeah i'm i'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to that and sometimes that gets in my way in my own way and sometimes it and, and most times it just creates for like a more solid piece you know so you started talking about the new work that you're working on with Living Legends. For some of our listeners, they might not be familiar. I'm wondering if you can bring us into the Living Legends. How'd you get to know the guys in Living Legends and how did you find yourself to be a part of it? Yeah, so Legends, uh, we are a crew of eight MCs and producers that came together mid-90s in the Bay Area, Oakland, Berkeley area. I linked up with them when I was in college in during that time. I was going to Humboldt State up north in the in the woods. And I was on a journey of kind of like I wasn't into school, but I was into music. I was into sports. I was playing football up there and that fizzled out and music was kind of like really what was taking hold for me. Um up there and I was doing shows. I was rapping with a live band and we were having some success in doing our thing. The name of the group was called Critical Measures. Shout out to Big G and uh, Rob Herrera and some of those musicians that we got down in, in, in the time, early mid nineties. And, uh, and I was DJing too. I was DJing parties up there. And so I would come down, I had an uncle that lived in Berkeley I would come down and stay in Berkeley for a couple nights or a weekend and record shop at Amoeba. And it seemed like every time I'd be down, I would catch the Mystic Journeyman, Grouch, uh, Merce, you know, doing doing a show at La Pena almost serendipitously. Like like the, the weekend I would decide to come down, there would be a show, Underground Survivors show at La Pena. Boom. And I would catch it. And I would be like, yo, this is this is what's up. This is a movement, underground, independent west coast you know bay area movement and i was familiar with hieroglyphics already dale the funky homo sapiens souls of mischief casual they they were doing their thing they were like you know signed artists at the time pretty much and then uh but this this mystic journeyman was spearheading a, a different type of thing and it was an independent diy um model hip-hop 
movement. And so I would tap in with them on the Ave, Berkeley, California. I would drop a, uh, I would drop a nugget in their box and they would give me a tape. I'd take that home and bump that. And then I remember uh, Sunspot was like, yo, uh, come over to the crib and, and record, a, uh, record a song, like bring some, bring some beers and some weed and like, let's record. So I did that. And that was kind of like my established um, connection. We did a song and uh, I think it was me, Lucky, PSC, uh, Sunspot, and a kid named uh, Plato from Twisted Mind Kids out of San Jose. And we got down. And then um, fast forward, make a long story short, when I moved to the Bay, me and uh, the drummer, Gabe, big drummer G, who was in Critical Measures up in Humboldt, he he was like, yo, you got to move down to the Bay, man. They, they got warehouses. You can get warehouse for super cheap. Boom. We need... You know, we need four. We need four guys. We get this warehouse in East Oakland. At the time, the rent was a thousand dollars a month. A thousand dollars a month for like a two thousand square foot or a thousand square foot warehouse, and we needed four dudes to fill it, right? Because that was our budget, two fifty a month for rent. That was like what we were working with. So I was like, I'm with it, and then it just turned out that the Mystic Journeyman. Uh, Lucky and Sunspot, they needed a place to stay when they got back from this this Japan tour that they just pieced together themselves and made happen. And that's the type of stuff that we you know that we were on. So they were coming back from Japan, needed a place to stay, and boom, that was it. Then it's funny how that kind of like you open the door floodgates. So we were all in this warehouse, and then everybody moved in: Merce, Grouch, Aesop, Eli, and then that was like what Sunspot called the outhouse. <laughs> uh, but that was East Oakland. Uh, first, like, boom, we were all one unit under one roof making music and, and you know, pushing each other's boundaries, learning about who everyone was and all of that. So that's that's how it all happened, like, in a nutshell. Yeah. Speaking of warehouses in Oakland, I want to move our conversation a little bit. I want to talk about Spirit House. Um, I know we're jumping forward in time quite a bit, but um, yeah, Spirit House was a super special place. It was doing like really vital black arts work. And I'm wondering for listeners who like have never heard of it at all before. Can you talk about what it was itself, but also like what it meant for you and what it meant for black community arts in Oakland? Yeah, yeah. Um, nice transition. So <laughs> Spirit House Gallery was a warehouse that I operated. I don't know. I lived I lived in Oakland for about 25 years after at that, you know, that college to adulthood. And for probably 75 percent of that time, I was I was living in various um, industrial warehouse artists live work spaces so the culture of artists and warehouses in oakland is is a thing you know and so um uh many people know about the ghost ship tragedy right and so that put that was like a that was kind of a a window into some um some of the the pitfalls of like a lot of just just a starving artist kind of like scenario uh, i've been to the, i was in ghost ship before it burned down and saw like the the mismanagement and the bullshit that was going on there and so rest in peace to all the souls that transitioned in that in that tragedy but before that i mean and during and and since i'm sure the the warehouse culture in oakland was a thing it was a place where you could have 
a lot of space, uh, work uh, kind of uninhibited with different mediums. M many, you know, people it, it could live at the same in the same place, share rent, and um, you know, have the space to create. And so, Spirit House Gallery was that. I was on a lease for a warehouse in West Oakland. It took many iterations of different things that that were programmed in there, but ultimately it landed as an art gallery, creative space, mixed multi-use space, because we programmed music and art and uh, community events out of there. You were the sound man for many of those events and we appreciated <laughs> right. your, your time and uh, also you performed there too. So, uh, but yeah, it was amazing because um, it was kind of the baby of like, myself and Mike Auberg, keyboard player. And he worked with Guapale. I knew him through Boots and The Coup. And we collaborated on music many times and used to just pretty much throw warehouse loft parties before the, the gallery was built out. And at one point, I showed him the downstairs and was like, yeah, look at this space. It's underutilized. And he was like, man, we should just do the gallery down here. And at the time, uh, had some resources available for that and and uh, really dope carpenter, uh, builder, jack of all trades that was on the team. And I shared the vision with him and pretty much from a drawing out of my mind, I built and we built we built the, the gallery space with a stage, uh, sound system, so many things that came into like serendipitously just fell into place. But um it was a very special place. It was um, inclusionary. It was a, f a safe space for women. A lot of the um, initial push and momentum was powered by by women in the community that made it. You know, that made it kind of like basically program the first opening night and continued to to have that um, that safe space for women to come dance and be uninhibited, not being groped or, you know, creeped out by weirdos in clubs, which actually happens a lot more than, than, than us men realize. And, you know, I, for me, it was a place where we overbuilt the sound system and I wanted to offer a place that had really clean bumping sound. Cause I, I would go to other venues in Oakland and be, um, to see some of my favorite artists and be disappointed by by the sound and the treatment in the building in the room and i felt like that was always a, a corner that was cut by some of these um establishments that needed to you know probably cover other bases but you know uh spirit house was a diy i i, I kept it in the model and the mold of what i came up doing with the legends and that was throwing our own parties and so it was a three-year run of a beautiful, magnificent Black arts-inspired um, uh, space, you know, and we held it down, and it was filled with the people's energy, and it, it was, it was, uh, I feel like it was protected somehow by, by no, no incidents, no drama, no police, no <laughs> shutting down any parties. So yeah, it was a blessing. It was a special little run, and um, I'm happy that I could have offered that to the community at the time. So I know it closed down early in the pandemic and that had a major effect, but uh, given, 
given Oakland and how Oakland's changed in gentrification and, and rent increasing, I'm just wondering, maybe I'm talking about Spirit House itself, but also just can that type of space, can you imagine that type of space existing again in Oakland? Yeah, you know, I can because I feel like, you know, I've been gone from Oakland since the pandemic, since 2020, we moved out. Um, the rent was pretty much a money pit. It was upside down at that point. We couldn't activate the space and have people in, you know, congregating in, inside. But to be honest, Spirit House was um, was not an efficient model. It was an unpermitted, underemployed, understaffed, I should say, and overworked situation that was basically breaking even. So for me, being the proprietor, it was not a solid business model. And um, it was a labor of love. It was probably the tightest little spot in Oakland that if you knew about, you could come to. But as far as a business model, sustainability, and um, it wasn't sustainable for me as as an artist, right? So I never programmed any of my own music, any of my, shown any of my own art. I just managed the space. And I looked at my clock, my watch at one point and said, hmm, I guess I could go 10 years doing this and, and never have anything to really show for it after that. And so how am I ever going to transition or how are we going to take it to the next step with the building space? I mean, we had Dave Chappelle in there uh, do a late night private dinner party, right? Early on in the first, within the first four months of the space. When he was in there and I was able to talk candidly with him, he was like, man, where'd you, how'd you get in this spot? Right. And so I knew that what I had was special. He even did some, I think he called it like the Dave Chappelle juke joint or something like that. A couple of them right before the pandemic. And they were in like secret spot. This is before he did his thing out on the, on the, um, his land out in Ohio. I think he did a couple little juke joint spots, maybe one in New Orleans and one somewhere else. And I know that he modeled that after his experience at Spirit House in Oakland. But I always thought in the back of my head, like, in order to really be sustainable, we need to own the building, first of all, right? And so, and then, you know, pull out all the permits to like do it right. And that was a big business venture that I'm, I was under, you know, wasn't in my roadhouse, my skill set. I didn't know how to, to um, structure that type of, that type of deal, let alone, you know, the books, the paperwork and payroll and all that stuff. So, it was interesting. It was a conundrum in a way. The pandemic came and kind of was the answer to all of that because we just couldn't keep the space right open. So it, it, at the time right before the pandemic, we were really talking about, OK, let's buckle down. Let's put this pitch deck together and find investment to purchase the building and do this this gallery multi-use space legit. Right. And so Dave Chappelle was on that short list of people that we were going to uh, present the, the idea to as far as investment and making it happen for, for as far as Oakland is concerned, it's a perfect place. I mean, so Oakland is like, it's always going to be a fertile, creative ground, regardless of how much gentrification takes place, how much the, the, um, the culture, uh, seems to ebb and flow, right? There's always going to be a creative grassroots, ghetto element to Oakland that's that's just a beautiful thing right and so um different organizations have have 
vested interest in keeping that that blood flow of the history of Oakland alive. Unfortunately, Spirit House wasn't able to to sustain that and, and continue with that legacy. But I but I would like to think, and I like I said, I haven't been in Oakland. I know Oakland's changing a lot. I've I've driven through it and visited several times and been like, oh, shit, this looks way different. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would like to think that there's always a space for that because you know, like San Francisco is a is a perfect example. Like San Francisco and Oakland parallel in a lot of in a lot of ways. And San Francisco kind of just went off the charts with the with the tech and the gentrification. But then but then the backlash, the backside of that coin is like downtown San Francisco now is aside from the homelessness and the and the opioid epidemic that's happening, the tech, the tech and the office space is like 30, 40, 50 percent vacant, right? You know, so right. So it's like it's weird how how cities ebb and flow with with gentrification or with displacement and stuff like that and i feel like the artists are always the ones we're like the roaches that come back after the after the apocalypse and say okay we're ready to start rebuilding the culture rebuilding the the vibes you know and so the artists are always going to be able to like flutter on the fringe and then like occupy again right um, when the when the landlords and the owners need places activated, who do they look to? They look to the people that are entrepreneurs. Say, hey, just activate my space. Just put a freaking barbershop in here, or do whatever. And then we'd be like, all right, well, how many months free rent are you going to give me to do this? All right, six months or a year lease free, and then we'll renegotiate. Things like that happen, you know. So you just you just let it build up until until it's until the bottom falls out and then the artists are there to to always occupy and activate spaces you know so yeah i think i think i would like to think that we are the most resilient like um contributors to 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 a city uh because we we are the culture you know we we're the ones that define what the vibe is of a city once it's gone i mean like they can put police out and stomp out uh, like first Fridays and different events that happen. And that is a way that you will lose like some real funk and real culture of, of a city, you know? And um, like, so I've seen San Jose kind of take that turn. It kind of like 1.30 AM, the cops hit the streets, all the clubs got to, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go, get off the street, boom, boom, boom. If it, once it becomes like that, you kind of can't, it's hard to exist, you know, like, the cops could have came down to Spirit House and busted us open all kinds of times. You know what I mean? I feel like we were protected. I also feel like we were kind of like given a pass in some weird way. I don't know. But, um, but you know, I, those type of things are important for, for sustaining the, the culture of a, of a city. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, I'd like to think that, that Oakland can have that and, and Berkeley can have that. Um, it does take moments in time. It, it takes special moments in time, like the underground hip hop thing that was happening in Berkeley and in Oakland during the, during the '90s when I linked with the legends. That was a that was a special time. You know, there was there was no social media. You know, it was hand to hand uh, tapes. It was hand to hand flyers for shows. It was people like word of mouth. So, you know, whatever the current flow is the artist will figure out a way to connect and 
And that I feel is like, that's really the lattice work, the ground, the roots of, of a city and its culture. So yeah, I, I, I love Oakland and I hope that it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't change like to the point where it can't, where it can't sustain, uh, itself culturally i don't i don't think it will i just think it's too thick it's too rich you know well thank you so much josh we're gonna have to leave it there because we're already over time but i do want to say congratulations on fatherhood i'm sure that's been a huge impact and a huge change and um yeah congratulations yeah man yeah it's been dope uh it's been amazing shout out jimmy simone and ruby badu my two little girls they, they put a whole new meaning to uh, the perspective of life and creativity and time, <laughs> time budgeting to, to have creative time and space. And so, yeah, we just trying to stay afloat with the family unit and, and vibe and be able to like, you know, push uh, through these first few years. They're, they're 20 months apart. So it's like um, pretty much a circus over here every day. And somebody told me it's going to get easier. So we're just keeping our eyes on the prize and pushing forward. But yeah, man, I appreciate you uh, hitting me up and having this talk. Really happy to have you on. Uh, we do have to leave it there. Picasso, thank you so much for joining us. All good, man. Appreciate you, Jesse. Peace and love. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance in Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Mm-hmm.